Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. I think there's some interesting parallels between uh, our life as Christians, uh, reflected, say, in that Philippians reading, and Nehemiah's life. And uh, I want to I want to see want to help you see some of that this evening. So let's pray as we come to hear God's word. A great God, you are rich in mercy. You've made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. And you've raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. In all this, we are your handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which you've prepared in advance for us to do. And enable us now to discern those good works you intend for us. Equip us for them, empower us to do them faithfully for your glory our Lord and Redeemer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And there's an outline that came around with the order of service, so that well, with the bulletin, so that will hopefully help you follow what I want to say. And I hope you've got a Bible there and uh, open up to Nehemiah. Uh, we'll get to chapter four in a minute, but I want to start back at the beginning in chapter one. And I want to begin by asking, what is your calling? Is that the way you think about life? What is it that God wants you to work at and invest in? We sometimes speak as if calling is only for ministers or missionaries, that you're only called to full-time Christian work, and I want to say it's way more than that. Uh, Sometimes we talk about calling really about our paid work, and you've got a vocation to be a teacher or a doctor, or and certainly our callings include that, but they're, but it's bigger. Every Christian is called to follow Christ, but you're called to follow Christ in specific ways in your life, and, and that's what I want us to think about today. What are you investing your efforts in at present? What's the big theme of your life? What has God called you to do, and how do you do it? And I'm asking that because as we open the book of Nehemiah, we just meet someone who's discovered his calling and is investing himself in it. Uh, Nehemiah discovered that God was calling him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so to set the scene, if you go back to chapter one, uh, the last two weeks we've heard about Ezra, who'd led the people to rebuild the temple and to return to listening to God and keeping God's law. And they made a start on building the walls, but they haven't got very far. And the book of Nehemiah takes place almost a lifetime later, about 60 years have passed. Uh, Nehemiah is another Jewish man working in the court of Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, uh, living in the city of Susa. He has an important job. He's the cupbearer, which doesn't mean simply that he holds the cup for the king, but that he's the official who chooses and tastes the wine. 
and, and then gives it to the king. So obviously the wine needs to taste good, but not only does it have to taste good, even more importantly, he's got to check it's not poisoned. And so he's actually a very trusted member of the staff of the court, often in the king's presence, able to perhaps to influence the king. He's in this high position and no doubt living a fairly comfortable life. But the visitors arrive from Jerusalem and he asks them, how are things going in Jerusalem? And what he hears is really bad news. Jerusalem is in trouble. At chapter 1, verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned by fire. Jerusalem is a devastated and demoralized city. And it's probably not just that the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar 120 years ago uh, hasn't been repaired, but even the repairs that have been done under Ezra have been destroyed. Things have got worse. Enemies are surrounding them and planning to attack them and the walls, which should be their protection, are, are, are gone. They're facing an economic crisis. We find out later in the book people are poor and hungry. And what a contrast this is to what Jerusalem should be. It's David's city. And under King Solomon, for instance, it was one of the great wonders of the world. It should sit strong and proud and secure with the temple glistening on Mount Zion. Uh, come, come with me, turn over to Psalm 48, just a, a few pages further over in the Bible. Psalm 48 gives us this description of what Jerusalem could be and should be. Uh, so Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. And it talks about what will, the great God protects Jerusalem if people attack her. Um, verse 9, within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise rages to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of, villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell them to the next generation. That's what Jerusalem is meant to be. But Nehemiah hears that's not at all how it is. Devastated, demoralized. And so Nehemiah weeps. He, for days he mourns, he fasts, he prays. God's people and God's city are ruined. God's glory is lost. His purposes seem to have come to an end. And so Nehemiah prays. He confesses the sin of the people. He recognises he's part of that. He acknowledges before God that this is God's judgment, God's just judgment on Israel. And he asks for mercy and he asks for God's help. And as he does that, he discovers his calling. He realises he doesn't belong in Susa. He should go to Jerusalem and play his part. And so in chapter 2, 
he asks for the king's leave and for letters authorizing him to go and rebuild. And Artaxerxes provides those and actually adds some army officers and cavalry for him to take with him. Here's Nehemiah's call. Chapter 2, verse 12, when he arrives in the city of Jerusalem, he has this interesting comment. He says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There's his consciousness of his call. Now, what's the parallel between Nehemiah and us? So Nehemiah discovers his calling, rebuilding Jerusalem. Do we have a calling like that? Well, I think we should. I think we do. And Nehemiah's calling starts with a commitment to God's plans and his glory. He knows Jerusalem matters. It's God's own city. It has God's promises. This is part of God's purposes. Nehemiah cares about that. He prays for it. And as he does that, God calls him to work in it. So when we talk about our calling, if it really is God's calling and not just my preference, then it will come from God's purposes and be revealed as they're revealed in the Bible. And what does the Bible say are God's purposes? Well, it's that the message of Jesus will be preached, that, that people from all nations will come to follow him, that the church will grow, that the kingdom will come that our own lives will be shaped by being like Christ. And Jesus says, seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. That's God's purpose. And he calls us to be part of that. And so thinking of God's calling is not just a way of allowing you to do whatever you feel like doing, but say, oh, that, that's what God wants me to do. Um, and sort of justify it as God's work. God's calling is not just that you'll have a, build a nice house or develop a great business or raise a wonderful family. It certainly may involve building and business and family, but it's going to be connected to and grow out of a commitment to God's kingdom. And Nehemiah finds his calling because he cares about God's kingdom, about the city, and he finds out what's needed. He asks and he prays about it. And then he sees his opportunity and what he can contribute. He understands his abilities and the doors that are open to him. And the Lord opens those doors as he seeks and prays. And he comes to this heart conviction that this is what he should do. I think we can and should seek the same kind of calling. I guess most of us, it's not going to be on the same scale of Nehemiah. We're not going to be called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but to find how our gifts and our opportunities lead us to serve in God's kingdom. Now, we'll serve in different ways. There's different tasks, but we're working towards the same goal. So I think of Romans 12, where Paul says, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy according to your faith. If it's Serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouragement, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. There's a description of some of the callings 
that Christians will have because of their gifts, all contributing together to the life of the body in that case and the establishment of the kingdom. I think sometimes maybe we're a little bit nervous to talk about our specific callings because it seems a bit overly pious, a bit super spiritual. Um, you know, perhaps we, we tend to say, well, we're all called to be Christians, to trust Jesus and obey him. And that's true, but we do it in specific ways in our circumstances with our gifts. I think our bigger problem is that we're often so consumed with our own projects and our own dreams. We don't seriously and prayerfully ask, Lord, direct me to do what you want me to do. As I reflect on myself about this, I think one of my temptations certainly is to want to be doing everything and be involved everywhere and uh, instead of patiently finding my place and focusing there. And so your calling may be in the workplace or it might be formal leadership in church, it might be raising your family, it might be reaching your neighbours, it might be serving the poor, it might be cross-cultural mission. But I want to encourage you to spend some time in prayer over the next few weeks asking God to help you to discern or to reaffirm your calling. I think maybe our danger at present is that we just go into survival mode and we think if I just kind of have it together by the end of the week and um, that, that's all I'm aiming for. But I think it's worth asking what's God calling you to do now as you're working from home or not travelling or not able to see your family? How can you preach Christ and build the kingdom and bless your neighbour in these weeks? Well, Nehemiah's call was to rebuild. And so the second part of chapter two, he arrives in Jerusalem. He goes out to inspect the walls. He sees the mess for himself. And then he starts to share his vision to, to lead people to be part of it. So verse 17, having inspected the walls, he says to the people in Jerusalem, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. And I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And the next chapter uh, is a detailed description of the various sections of the walls and who's responsible for working on which part. And I think even that highlights this idea of different callings of Nehemiah has the task of leading this project but each family and each group have a different part of the wall that they are going to work on. It's no surprise then that there's opposition. It's really a spiritual principle, isn't it, that Christians live on a battlefield. There are forces and people who are opposed to God, who hate his kingdom, who want to stop it or destroy it. Jesus says to his disciples, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. The world will hate you. They'll treat you the way they treated me. When Paul said to the Philippians in that reading we, we had earlier, calling them to stand firm, uh, to strive together without being frightened by those who oppose them. He says it's been granted to you to, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. 
if you commit to seeking God's kingdom, you can expect trouble and opposition. Sometimes the opposition is internal. If you read on later in the book of Nehemiah, there's internal dissension amongst the people of God. But in this passage, what's highlighted is the external opposition. Uh, You first get a hint of it in chapter 2, verse 19. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about the rebuilding and they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this they're doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. And then at chapter 4 we heard, beginning of chapter 4, Sanballat again ridiculing the Jews, mocking them. What are they doing, these feeble Jews? Are they going to be able to restore this wall? Can they offer sacrifices? Do they think they're ever going to get it finished? This is laughable. And um, Tobias says, what they're building, even if a fox runs over it, the walls are going to fall down. Now, we might think that mockery shouldn't really matter to us. Why should we care what people think and what they say? But it does matter to us and we do care because of the way God's made us. We're actually made to connect with the people around us and their words affect us. It's interesting how often the Bible talks about God's people being mocked. And, and yeah, there's plenty of mockery today. No shortage of people who despise the Christian faith, think it makes no sense. If you're investing your life in pursuing God's kingdom, there'll be people around you who'll think and who'll tell you what a waste of time that is. There's lots of us around our churches that are involved in Christian education in in different ways, in Christian schooling or teaching SRE in public schools, and there's plenty of suspicion and criticism of those kind of activities. So Nehemiah faces this mockery, and then Sanballat and Tobiah build their alliance and start to plot violence. Uh, Verse 7. They became very angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So you can be sure that when you pursue God's calling, you'll face opposition. It might be overt. It might be covert. It might be mockery. It might be plots or threats. It might be human. It may be Satan sowing disharmony and discouragement. But it doesn't mean that you've failed or that this is not your calling. In fact, it's exactly what you should expect. Now, how does Nehemiah respond? Well, the first thing he does is that he prays. One of the impressive things about Nehemiah throughout the book is he's quick to pray. He hears about the problems in Jerusalem in chapter 1 and he prays. He goes to speak to Artaxerxes and the king asks him, what do you want? And he says, I prayed and then I answered. And now here as they're mocked, he prays, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. He hears about the plot against Jerusalem and he prays. And he prays according to God's will. He prays for God's plans and promises. Even when he prays against the mocking, he's asking that God's plans will succeed, that God's enemies will be defeated and ashamed. And I think he highlights two problems that we modern Christians have with prayer. The the first problem we've got, the obvious one, is 
We don't pray. We live in a culture that's self-confident and focused on our own achievements, uh, our own resources. We, we very easily think that we've got things under control. And where in the past Christians invested a great deal of time in prayer, we're often too busy doing things to pray. But our hidden problem, the less obvious problem with prayer, that Nehemiah also highlights, is when we do pray, it often becomes therapy. It's about us feeling better and asking God to fix up our problems. Now, now we can and we should pray about anything and everything. We can ask for our immediate needs. But the biblical pattern is that prayer is built from God's promises, that we're asking God for what he said that he'll give us, and it's tied into his plans. And so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what did he teach them to pray? As we've prayed already this evening, your kingdom come, your will be done. God had promised the kingdom. Jesus has announced the kingdom, and then he teaches his disciples, ask God for it. Paul, as he prays for the Philippians, remembering them with great love, he doesn't pray for their health or for their jobs or facing persecution. He doesn't even particularly pray for their safety. He prays that their love for God and for each other will be abound in knowledge so that they know how to live for Christ and they live lives that will bring him glory and praise. He's praying that God will achieve his purposes in their lives. And my sense is this is often not the centre of our prayers, that we pray for the obvious needs first and then the kingdom comes second if it's there at all. should be the other way around. Nehemiah's passionate to see God's plans work out, to see the walls built, to see the kingdom established, and so he prays. Uh, the most important and the first thing to do in pursuing your calling is to ask God to be at work. After Nehemiah prays, and as he prays, he acts, he plans, and he works. There's a famous verse, verse 9. We prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. We prayed. And then we posted a guard. And there's a lot of planning and work that happens through this chapter. Um, even after Nehemiah sent off the immediate threat, he arranges for people to be ready to fight while others are working. He instructs them to carry their weapons while they work. He makes sure that there's a trumpeter who can sound the alarm and people have a plan to rally wherever they're being attacked. He, he keeps everyone inside at night to keep them safe inside the walls. He works hard. At the end of the chapter, he says, we never took off our clothes or left our weapons at all. And he doesn't do this because he doesn't think God will keep his answer his prayers. Just the opposite. It's because he knows God is at work that he works. So when the people are feeling overwhelmed by the task and the opposition, in verse 14, he says to them, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. We sometimes think there's an either or. 
either you trust God and pray or you plan and you work. Even at present, you hear people setting things up like that uh, about COVID. You hear people saying, in effect, if you trust God, then you don't need to do anything like take a vaccine or wear masks. And if you do take precautions, then you don't really trust God. That's not the way God works at all. We pray and trust in God. We work and we plan and we keep praying. Sometimes here when, when something really remarkable happens and you know, we'll say, oh, God really came through there. But when Nehemiah works out a strategy and executes it and leads people well and works hard and the wall gets built, that's God coming through because it all depends on God. Psalm 127 opens by saying, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards watch in vain. In the book of Philippians, Paul prays for the Philippians and then he writes them a letter and sends people to visit them. So your calling in God's kingdom deserves your prayers and your work. You're called to something bigger than yourself, something more secure than your efforts, something more exciting than you could possibly dream up yourself. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes back to Jesus' resurrection. He says, because Jesus has been raised, we're secure in him, and there's a sure future of sharing in God's glory. So, he says, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because God has a plan. Invest in it. Back when I was the minister of the Presbyterian Church in Cowra quite a few years ago now, uh, one of the guys in our church was Sam. He was a, an elder in the church. He was a farmhand. He was a, a little guy who'd worked outside all his life, um, had weathered tough skin. When I, when I first met him, I thought he was still in about 70. I think probably he was only in his mid-50s. Didn't have much of an education. He had only learnt to read as an adult. Had a rough life and a tough upbringing, but became a Christian as an adult. And having become a Christian, he discovered Boys Brigade. And that was his calling. He really connected with boys, often boys from a similar background to himself. He mentored them. He took them on adventures. He, each week he turned up at Boys Brigade to lead. And to encourage them, he was always recruiting people from around church to help. He was showing the boys and their families God's love and sharing the good news of Jesus, uh, praying for them and getting other people around church to pray for them. He found a work that fitted his gifts and that built God's kingdom and he invested in it. Right, let, let's pray that we'll be the same. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for... Uh, the fact that you put works before us, that you give us gifts, that you open doors, uh, in various ways you call us to serve you. Uh, help us to give ourselves fully praying and working. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.